Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series in the book of Habakkuk called God and the Problem of Evil. So turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, as we hear a message entitled, The Fate of the Righteous. There are some things about the counsels of God that we're never going to understand. But when I say that, I fear that's all some people hear. Saying that there are some things about the counsels of God that we're never going to understand is permission for some to remain as blissfully ignorant about the things of God as they can possibly be. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 is one of my favorite verses. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So consider that. The secret things, well, they'd include things like, who are those who have been elected from all of eternity? And it, well, it includes things like the activities of God in eternity past and the timing of our Lord's return. Well, I could go on and on. Because of his infinite goodness and wisdom, there are things that God has not made known to us. But that's only half the equation. The other half is that there are things that are revealed and they belong to us and to our children. There are things that God has revealed and it is no virtue at all to remain ignorant of the things that have been revealed. In our study of Habakkuk, we've seen that he's a prophet who's most likely served as a temple prophet. And as such, he would often seek God on behalf of people and and he would come to inquire of God. But on this occasion, Habakkuk has been inquiring of God on his own behalf. And we've been witnessing that Judah and Jerusalem in particular is increasingly becoming a more corrupt culture. We know from other records that during his time, idolatry was on the rise. We also know that violence was on the rise, along with a complete corruption of the law, and that allowed for the wealthy and the powerful to prey on the vulnerable members of society. Habakkuk wants to know why God appears to simply idly be watching as this goes on. And God answers him. He's not idly looking on. He's raising up what was, at that time in history, the most terrifying superpower the Middle East had ever seen. They would come to Jerusalem and destroy it. Of course, Habakkuk is shocked. And out of his astonishment comes his second question or his second complaint. He acknowledges that Judah has become a wicked nation, but that Babylon is more wicked than Judah. Can a God who is pure and holy use wicked men to accomplish his purposes? For if he does, Habakkuk knows that that Babylon will not acknowledge that they have been appointed by God. Indeed, they will boast of their own strength and, and worship their own military as their own God. And so Habakkuk's second question boils down to one point. How can God idly look on and remain silent while traitors to the glory of God swallow up nations that, while they're wicked, are more righteous than the Babylonians? Now, truly, even though Habakkuk has been asking his question out of his own concerns. All of us who read the book of Habakkuk today should recognize that at this moment, Habakkuk is doing the greatest work of his lifetime. Up till now, people have been coming to him and asking him to inquire of God on their behalf. But on this occasion, in reality, he's asking God on behalf of everyone who has ever believed in the Lord. His questions are our questions. Why does it seem that evil is prevailing and God watches idly by? And why is it that nations who become subverted are often defeated by powers that are more wicked than they are? And this really is how God governs the world. And is this 
how God is sovereignly working. Or perhaps some of us have made this question far more personal. Why is it at my work that an unrighteous supervisor is allowed to continue to prosper? Or why does a woman with an abusive and adulterous spouse see that her spouse divorces her and then prospers and does better than she does? And I hope you see, no matter how you apply this, there are literally thousands of computations of the same problem. And Habakkuk is doing his greatest work yet. For the first time, he's seeking God on behalf of all who believe. And so let's see what happens as he goes to God for an answer. So pull up your chair just a little closer. For what is said next is an encounter between a righteous prophet and a holy God. I'm reading Habakkuk 2 verse 1, and as we begin to read, please notice that Habakkuk is now speaking. He says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. See, in the ancient world, everyone would have understood this verse. The watch post is the place where sentries would go. They'd be posted on a city wall and they'd be awaiting news from a runner who would come to report on a battle. Habakkuk goes to that same place and he's awaiting an answer from God. He doesn't know how long he's going to wait, but he knows that God is going to answer. See, this activity of waiting was not uncommon. So, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 21, verses 6 to 9, the prophet stands on the watchtower, and he's awaiting news of the downfall of Babylon. And in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, God speaks to Ezekiel, and he says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So we've got to imagine Ezekiel standing at the watchtower, and he's awaiting a message from God, and then when it comes, he must immediately tell Israel what God is saying to them. So this idea of a watchman means that he waits. A message is going to come. He just doesn't know when it's going to be. But it is vital that whenever an answer comes, the watchman is expected to deliver the message. See, in the ancient world, failure to immediately communicate an answer that might come from a runner, well, that failure would put an entire city at risk. Now, I want you to imagine that Habakkuk is waiting on the watchtower for you. See, all believers in a sovereign God need this answer, especially in the day of suffering. So if you're a believer, you might say in faith, God, I know that you have to test me and, and discipline me and shape my character, making me ready for eternity. But why does that process include your use of evil things, things like job loss and, and death of loved ones and illness and cancer, persecution? Why must you use evil to shape my character? And you can almost sense the tension among us as we wait. For the vibrancy and health of our faith depends on what God's going to say. And as we wait, Habakkuk waits on the watchtower. And then God answers. So I want you to listen, for this answer is so very important and so precious. I'm reading Habakkuk 2, verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. And from that, we have to assume that while Habakkuk awaited at the watchtower, at some point in time, God gives him a vision. And by the way, this is what makes the nature of the Bible so vital. The Bible is not the thoughts and words of men. It is that which comes from the mouth of God. See, Hebrews 1 verse 1 says, Long ago, and in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets, 
in many ways. There were multiple ways in which God speaks to the prophets. But on this occasion, the means whereby the word of the Lord came to this prophet was by means of a vision. So in the ancient world, when the watchman on the wall received a message, it was his task to run and communicate that message to the appropriate person as quickly as is possible. But who here is the appropriate person who has been called upon to hear this message? Notice Habakkuk is called upon to make it plain on tablets. So in the ancient world of Habakkuk's day, clay tablets were used for bulletin boards. They were then placed in a public place so that anyone could read it. But in this case, the one who reads the bulletin board is called upon to run. That would mean that the person who becomes aware of Habakkuk's vision is supposed to communicate the contents of Habakkuk's vision as widely as is possible. And the reason for that is that what Habakkuk was shown was so important that the contents of this vision must be communicated as widely as possible. Now, from the context, all that makes sense after all. If God had just appointed the Babylonians to conquer Jerusalem for her sins, well, that message needed to be heard by everyone inside the city of Jerusalem. For one, I would imagine that they should get busy and and repent of their sins and plead with God for mercy. But, of course, the explanation of why God remains righteous while he appoints a wicked nation to execute his judgment is also vital for us. So from our perspective, we who, who live thousands of years later, This is so vital. You see, Habakkuk didn't just get a vision. God told him to write it down. And we, thousands of years later, have a copy of what he wrote. God insisted that what he showed to Habakkuk was so important that the entire human race should hear. And indeed, I hope you're now at a point where you're ready to hear something that's going to change your life. The study of Habakkuk tells us something that every one of us who are in faith desperately need to know. Our faith depends on this. Lorraine wrote, Listening to Back to the Bible Canada and Laugh Again starts my day off right. It amazes me how God's love reaches into my life daily through these programs. God's Word is so precious. I also get a real lift from Laugh Again with Phil. Sometimes I just need that chuckle to help get me through the day. Lorraine, thank you. Your encouragement lets us know lives are being touched and the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are making a difference. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God and the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? With your consistent support as a monthly partner or because of your gift today, the good news is being shared across our nation. To join in the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, or In Doubt, call us with your gift at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Habakkuk the prophet received a vision from God that answers one of the most perplexing questions that believers have had for centuries. Why do the wicked prosper? And when they're punished, why are they punished by nations that are often more wicked than they? Now, we've been making the point that we need not only ask searching questions, but we need to be humble enough to hear God's answers. 2,600 years ago, God answered this question in a vision to the prophet Habakkuk. And if it is, as Moses has said, the things revealed belong to us, then we need to take ownership of God's answer. 
I'm reading Habakkuk 2, verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Now here it's important to recognize what the vision is. The vision is not the content of verse 4. Rather than the vision deals with the rest of chapter 2, where God shows his people exactly how Babylon is going to be destroyed and what happens to wicked people and wicked nations. But this vision of Babylon's destruction still awaits its appointed time. The idea is the end is coming. Judgment Day will not be delayed by anything outside of God's timetable. One needs to be patient as the outcome of the vision works its way through. So think about it for a moment. God allows evil to have a day when it seems unstoppable so that when he defeats it, which we will learn about in chapter 3, his victory will seem the more sweet, all the more beautiful, all the more glorious, and will lead us to worship, or if you will, lead us to have our own Stanley Cup parade. I was a young man when I first read Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, long before it had ever become a movie. I was in university at the time, and as I was plowing through that three-volume set, I was overwhelmed with how evil and dark and oppressive this thing was. I felt oppressed while reading it. I remember thinking, you know, I've just got to stop reading this thing. It's as if this is an evil book. I mean, it was the ring and the orcs and the seemingly unstoppable movement of evil, the deep power of darkness. It made me feel miserable. I felt like I was reading about Satan and his kingdom. I I felt I should stop. This was affecting my moods. (laughs) But I couldn't stop reading. Just to put the book down now and not come to a resolution, that was more than I could live with. I felt like something final and ultimate needed to be said about evil. And so on I read. But when the end came, I was glad for the darkness in the book because resolution was all the more beautiful. If it had not been so dark, it would not have seemed so overwhelmingly sweet in the end. And so it is with God. The deeper the evil becomes, the more glorious God will appear to the redeemed humanity when the Lamb finally and utterly triumphs over Babylon. One day, All the host of heaven will roar the most explosive roar. They will shout with glee, Babylon has fallen. That's what the book of Revelation teaches us. But until that moment comes, we live in the shadow of Babylon. God has a far greater glory to be revealed than we now think possible. The answer to Habakkuk's questions is his answer to all those who have faith, who are asking what Habakkuk asks. But as God answers, we learn that God's answers vindicate his methods. When Christ finally triumphs, we will be glad for the darkness that Christ has redeemed us from. When we see the cross and the great mercy and grace of God, we will say, if it were not for all that evil, I would never have seen mercy. I remember years ago hearing a a fine preacher say, I'm so glad I'm a sinner. For I have seen the cross, something angels who have never seen have not understood. We're going to say so much more about this in the next section on Habakkuk. But I've been leading us to verse 4. And when we come to verse 4, which is the beginning of God's answer to Habakkuk, we should be aware that right now we actually come to the high point of the book. I'm reading Habakkuk 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. See, what makes verse 4 so precious that every one of us should know this verse well? Well, let's start by noticing the contrast in this verse. On the one hand is Babylon, proud, arrogant, 
And in verse 5, she is further described as as greedy as the grave and utterly sinful. And on the other hand is the righteous person. But here's the key question. Who is the righteous person? And the answer must be that the righteous person is the opposite of Babylon. See, Babylon is self-reliant. She, she believes in herself, is proud, believes they, they get ahead by their own power. The only person who gets ahead is the person who looks after themselves and has the means to get what they want. <laughs> so is that you? And, and perhaps it is. I pray it's not. The righteous person is the opposite. It's humble, reliant, trusting in God. Now, notice the next word in verse 4. The righteous live while the wicked, that is Babylon, will die. Judgment awaits the proud while life awaits the humble. Years ago, I once saw a piece of graffiti written in a bathroom, the only piece of graffiti I've ever seen that I want to repeat here. It simply said, we meek will inherit the earth if that's all right with the rest of you guys. Now, I'm sure that the person who wrote that was making fun of that idea. In other words, common sense tells us this is impossible. Babylon survives. The rich and powerful survive. People who have the means to get their own way, they survive. Indeed, even Judah in Habakkuk's day, the the powerful princes always got their way without thinking about how that impacts others. Those who say God helps those who help themselves survive, we think. But God says, in fact, they don't. The meek survive. How then do the righteous survive? And the answer is by faith. Now, this is so important, we must not miss it. If you think about this verse and the context in which it was given, this verse seems all the more surprising. Do you remember Abraham standing before God overlooking the city of Sodom? God reveals to him that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham asks, will you sweep away the righteous along with the wicked? The question must surely be on our minds as we slowly read our way through Habakkuk. If God will use the Babylonians to punish faithless and unrighteous Israel, what then will become of the just and of the righteous? Will God sweep away the righteous along with the wicked? And in verse 4, we learn that there is great hope for those who believe. For those who believe, verse 4 provides deep peace in the day of evil. Habakkuk had to know at this point that God would only allow through the door that which God willed, both for his own glory and the long-term good of those who love him. Standing before the terrifying Babylonians, Habakkuk could say, God's in control. But he could also say more. He could say, the reason this is happening has everything to do with God's long-term purposes, which includes me and all those who put their trust in God. And you and I can do the same. See, if today your, your house burns down and your money disappears and your children die, God forbid, then like Job, you can say, were it not for God's concern for me and his compassionate love for me, this would never have happened. How many times has God prevented evil from coming to me? I mean, I don't know. But if today he has not, then he has done so for his glory and for my long-term good. Blessed be the name of the Lord, for he both gives and he takes away. It means deep peace in the day of evil. And I hope you see that suffering and hardship means something very different for the redeemed than it means for the damned. For the damned. Suffering is a foretaste of eternal damnation, but for the redeemed, suffering is identification with Christ and his preparation to maximize your long-term and eternal joy. 
The writer of Hebrews quotes this passage from Habakkuk in Hebrews 10, verse 38. So let me read to you the context from which he quotes it from verses 34 and 35. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Then the writer of Hebrews quotes Habakkuk 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, knowing that the righteous shall live by faith and the wicked shall be destroyed, and knowing that God only allows that evil into the door that will be for the eternal good of his children, these Hebrew Christians could accept persecution, which included the confiscation of their property and life savings with joy. I mean, why shouldn't they? They had the evidence of Christ's crucifixion, which only resulted in his resurrection and glorification, and their end would be like Christ's end. Yes, the righteous will live by faith. We shall thrive by faith. We shall not fear the day of the Babylonians, for God has never taken his eye and his affection from those whom he loves. Have confidence, my dear brother and sister. O Lord, my God, strengthen those whom you love so that we might not lose our confidence in the day of trouble. In Jesus' name, amen. John, I think what you've told us today is actually very encouraging. But I think what you're not telling us is that, you know, through these difficult things, these painful experiences, we're not asking to be joyful in those situations, are we? Yeah, well, certainly we're not all chuckles through it. That's a fact. I mean, we are joyful in difficulties in a different joyful, a deeper sense of the thing. But all suffering seems painful. I think the important point for us is when you're going through the deep valley, when things don't make sense and, you know, when all men have turned against you or when it just seems like uh, it, like you're just facing darkness, the, the word for the child of God is don't lose your confidence in God. You hold on to his hand because as you do, you don't have to see what everything means. You just need to trust. That, that's the issue. And as you trust, you're going to find that God will not only take you through, but it will start to make sense. At the beginning, it doesn't. You don't lose confidence in God. You trust in Him. Amen. The righteous shall live by faith. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Hi, this is Dr. John Newfell from Back to the Bible Canada. Let me start by saying how grateful I am for all you've done to make the fiscal year-end campaign at Back to the Bible a success. Every time a gift is received, I am overwhelmed by your trust and support. The willingness and generosity of friends like you ensures that the mission of Bible teaching here at Back to the Bible Canada continues across this nation. It really is a coast-to-coast effort. Listeners from every province and territory, in small towns and in big cities. I'm so grateful for those who share a heart for God's Word and a desire to see lives impacted by Jesus. So I offer a sincere and heartfelt thank you. Your kindness makes every one of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada possible. May the Lord bless you. 